My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. <clears throat> hey, well, it is uh, officially February, right? We are one month past the new year, uh, past January 1st. And I am sure that a little over a month ago, many of you with a great exuberance and great fervor made some New Year's resolutions, some goals that you were going to run at. I um, assume many of you did that. And I also assume that just one month later, many of you have already fallen off the wagon. Is that true? Okay, you're not going to admit it, but I bet that for many of you, that's true. For me, I can't even, I, I really can't even remember making New Year's resolutions. I think I got, I have like, I have four kids, five and under, and I think it was coming to the end of December, and I'm like, you know what, I'm just happy to be alive. Like, it's just, I survived this year, and, and I'm just going to try to survive another year. I think that's good enough for me. However, I did read an article right around the new year uh, about this new fad. Now, I'm probably late to the game. I'm getting a little old. But I read about this new fad that, that um, people, you know, when they're used to making resolutions that are very measurable, like, um, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds this year, or I want to quit eating sugar and I want to start eating twice as many veggies, or I want to start getting up earlier this year, or, or you know, I want to go to the gym three times a week. Instead of making those kind of numerical goals that, that fail a lot, this new push, this new fad is that you would choose a word or a couple words to describe your year. Many of you are doing this. I've heard some of you tell me your word that you've described. But the idea is, is that this uh, one word would describe kind of how you want to grow this year. So maybe you pick a word like discipline. And the idea is, is that word kind of governs how you want to grow. You want to be uh, more disciplined in how you uh, keep your house and your car clean and how you want to get up early in the morning and how you want to be more uh, efficient with your work life and how you want to be healthier. You just want to be disciplined. So discipline is your word. Or some of you, you may pick a word like brave. You know, you feel like you operate out of fear a lot and in your relationships, you're very passive. And so you're like, no, I'm going to be brave this year. I want to approach my relationships with, with some boldness this year. And there's always that, that one thing I wanted to, to start that blog, or I wanted to write and record that song. I'm going to be brave and I'm going to actually do that. You get the idea. You pick a word and that's kind of your North star or your compass for how you're going to live. Now, as I wrestled with this passage in Ephesians and, and I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with it, I realized that, that this passage could be summed up in, in really one word. And it really is God's resolution for us. In other words, there is one word that describes what God is thinking when he looks at our year of 2019, or really any year, he's saying, hey, there's one word that I have for you that I want to accomplish in you. How he acts toward us, how he lays out his path and how he's leading and guiding us, his purpose statement or his one word that is going to be summed up in these four verses is very simply this, mine. When he looks at you, he says that you are mine. So, so the idea is, is he, he looks at us and he says, I want you to act as if you are mine. When you're going through this year and you're making decisions, I want you to make decisions as if you are mine. When I'm looking at, at you, my child, and you are, and I'm trying to think of how I want you to grow, develop, change, God looks at you and he says, I want you to look like you are mine. 
Now, I realize as we walk in here, we're walking in here, and we're kind of all over the spectrum. Some of you maybe uh, have never placed your faith in Jesus. There's other of you who would say you are Christians, but some of you are just, you're kind of apathetic toward God right now. There's some of you who are walking in here, and you're kind of bitter toward God because of something that's happened. There's others of you who walk in here and you feel ashamed. You feel like you're uh, not worthy to be in the presence of God. There's some other people in here who, who feel like you have this incredible pressure to perform for God. That's kind of how I feel a lot of times. And there's others of you who are in a great place right now. And you're, you're like, man, I'm getting life from Jesus. This is amazing. And so we, we like cover this huge spectrum of where we're all at. But I want to say this, that if you are in Christ, God's commitment to grow, to change, to transform you this year is astronomically greater than your own commitment to change yourself. And Providence, that's good news. Isn't that good news? That we can get excited this morning because Jesus has only begun with us. That there is a glorious time coming. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. God is doing an active work in you. And this morning, we're going to talk about that in two ways. We're going to talk about, from the passage, God's goal for us and his guarantee for us. We're going to talk about how God wants to change you, first of all. But then we talk about how God guarantees that it won't fail. And my hope is that as we walk out of this place this morning, that we may be able to walk out of here with a smile on our face and a hope deep in our heart because God has guaranteed that he will not let us go and he will finish the work that he started. My hope is that we grasp that this morning. And so, as God claims, mine over us. We're going to look at this first point, which is God's goal, okay? God's goal for us. And we're going to look at Ephesians 1.11. So, so look at your Bible in front of you if you have it. And we're going to read the first verse. It says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his Will. So last week, if you were here, McGill got up here and he preached a great sermon in the passage from right before this that talked all about Jesus' redemption. Remember what he said? Remember that he, he said that, that Jesus essentially buys us back out of our broken and sinful state. He, uh, he compared all of us to his uh, beat up, ugly is everything, uh, windshield washer, fluid, blue, Ford Focus. You remember this, right? And he said, he told the story about how his car got stolen. It got beat up. It got dented. It got torn and tattered. People were making drugs inside of it. It smelled terrible. And the thing got stolen and eventually got found. It was in an impound yard. And McGill had to go and buy it back. It was rightfully his. He saw his wreck of a car and he's like, I want to get that back. By the way, I think that might have been a horrible decision because that car was really ugly. But he did it anyway. He, he did it anyway in its broken down state. And he said, hey, that's rightfully mine. I want that back. And he described, that's what Jesus does with us in our broken and rebellious state. And he says, Paul says in this passage, or he's going to describe the detail of that redemption. In these first couple of verses, if he says first in Christ or through that purchasing of us in our broken state, that we were 
chosen. Now, in this translation, you don't exactly see that. In the ESV, it's confusing at best because in the first line, in the first phrase, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. It makes you think that that we get an inheritance from God. And now, while that is true, and it, we'll talk about that in a couple of verses because it actually says it later, but it, it, it's kind of cloudy at best. What this is saying, but a better translation maybe, is that we are not uh, obtaining an inheritance, but we have become his inheritance, that we are God's inheritance. In the NIV, if you have that version in front of you, it very simply says that you have been chosen. Now, for all sorts of scholarly reasons, uh, this gets translated in this kind of confusing language at the beginning. But the gist of this first phrase is that God chooses us. He chooses to call us mine. He wants us to become his inheritance for eternity. Now, think of the value that that puts on us, that God wants us for his inheritance. Think of all space and time. Think of all things visible and invisible. Think all the way back in your history book, all the things in the past that you have read about, that have ever existed, the ancient wonders of the world, all that. And then think to the future, all of the things in the hundreds of years to come, the innovations, the amazing inventions that will one day be. Of all of that, God chooses one thing to be his inheritance, and that is people, but not just any people. It's you and I, if we're in Christ. We are his inheritance, his special possession, his treasured possession. Now, if you're in here and you got picked last in elementary school PE because you were horrible at dodgeball, feel free at any point to stand up and say, hey guys, look at me now. I got picked by God, right? A couple weeks ago, uh, we had our staff... Christmas party. I know it's a little weird. Midway through January, having a staff Christmas party, but we played uh, we played archery tag. If you've never heard of it, look it up. It's very fun. It's amazing. Go play it. But toward the end, when our skills had been clearly shown and who was the sharpest shooters had been shown, uh, the staff person from the archery tag place set us all uh, out and he said, "Okay, here's the two cat." Or she said, "Here's the two captains. Now pick teams." Now my skills had been shown, and so out of the 18 people there, I got picked second out of 18. Now, if you would have seen me shoot, you would have known that I should have been picked first because I was a dead eye. I was the best. That's just my humble opinion, of course. But really, when you're playing a sport like that, it is ridiculous to do anything but pick the most skilled people first, right? However, the beauty of the gospel is that if you're coming in here and you're feeling inferior this morning, if you're coming in here and you feel insecure because you're single and you see all these married people and you wish you could be like them or you see families up here up front and you just wish you had a, a, a child too or, or maybe you're looking up front on the people up here on stage you're like, man, I don't have talents like those people that can sing or can play or maybe you know that you have sins that you've committed on the outside that people have seen and, and you're feeling ashamed of that because these other people that are walking in here, you don't see them carrying around that on the outside for people to know. Well, I want you to know that God doesn't choose based on earth accomplishments. McGill described it well last week. He said, our sin and our brokenness make us all this ugly, hideous, blue, beat-up, drug-infested, 
forward focus. We were all a mess. We were all messed up and broken and lost and hopeless, but he chose us to be a prized possession. A treasure, a family heirloom of sorts. And so if you're down on yourself this morning and you have trusted in Jesus, could you breathe a sigh of relief because God has chosen you to be his inheritance? Okay, let me take this a step further. The next phrase says this. It says, this happened according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, now, this says all things. Think about all things for a second. This is going to be a little bit difficult. Think about all things. Think about your grades. Think about uh, your family relationships you have. Think about the lunch that you ate yesterday, the conversation that you had during the meet and greet time. Think about maybe the city group you belong to. Think about your to-do list that you have. I mean, all things, right? This says that all things work according to the counsel of his will. Now, I did a little studying on on this because I'm like, wait, what is counsel exactly? And it said the the closest translation of this word is the, the idea of deliberation. You know, when you have to make a decision and there's some sort of deliberation, deliberation process to come to a conclusion. Well, this is saying that when it comes to all things in your life, there is this grand and cosmic deliberation process that goes on in God's mind. This cosmic, godly deliberation process that he goes through in order to govern your life in in a way that would um, help guide you to become his inheritance according to his will. There's a quote from R.C. Sproul that we have that I'm going to throw up on the screens that, that describes this well. It says, the creator plans and steers all events down to the smallest detail, including even the seemingly inconsequential decisions we make every day, such as the color of the shirt we will wear or the cereal we will eat for breakfast. All things, great and small, good and evil, are included in our God's sovereign ordination of history. And then it says, such a truth comforts us greatly as it guarantees that he will use Everything that happens in our lives to make us finally fit to be regarded as his inheritance. You probably didn't think the Fruit Loops you ate this morning had anything to do with you being transformed into looking like Jesus. Well, think again. He is working in you. God has not looked past one detail and he is redeeming it strategically to help make you into his inheritance. Man, that's a comfort. He's redeeming it to call you mine. Now, the last phrase in this section, in the next verse, it says that all of this happens um, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. This whole process of making us into his inheritance, this whole deliberation process that he goes and he works through in all things to guide us through life. This is all to make us, it says, right here, live a life that is to the praise of his glory. In other words, he not only wants to look at us and say, she's mine or he's mine, but he wants our lives to scream, we are his. You know, uh, Andrew mentioned we did staff goals a few weeks ago, 
And, and as I've thought about the six goals that we wrote on the board, uh, I had to pause and think after I read this verse and, and pause and think, okay, if we actually achieved all six of those goals, would that be to the praise of his glory or would it be to the praise of providence's glory? It might depend on where our hearts are, right? Then I was thinking about the little iPhone note that I have uh, about my gym goals that I have of making it. Maybe I do have a resolution, actually. I have gym goals on a note. But I, uh, I, I have, like, maxes that I'm trying to, to do in deadlift and squat and bench press and all these random different lifts. And, and I had to pause and think, man, if I achieve all those things, is that going to be for his glory or is it going to be for my own glory. When you think about it for you, as you think about maybe the word that you've said or the couple words that you've said for your life for this year, would those things, if you, if you really lived up to that, would that point to your own greatness or would that point to God's greatness? If you achieved, if you succeeded in really embracing that word, would it reflect something of your own glory or of God's? Now, at first thought, living for someone else's glory, like living for God's glory, is honestly, it can be a little off-putting at times. But if you've ever tried to live for your own glory, what happens when you do that? Like, have you ever thought about that? I know, from my experience, more often than not, you're left disappointed. You're trying to achieve your own glory. You have to, to win the approval of everyone. You need more and more glory everywhere you go. I feel like I'm guilty of this so often, living for my own glory. And when I am, what happens? I think some of you might be able to relate to this. It, It means that in every room that you walk into, every meeting that you step into, every time you step on a place like a stage like this, you are fighting and clamoring for your own glory because you have to prove it. Over and over again, you have to prove it and get more and more. And it never fills you up. It is enslaving. But if you drop your own glory and you live for God's glory, you then become free. You have nothing to prove. When we surrender to that, you start and you start living for God's glory. You start looking around at your relationships at your meetings, at your tasks, and you start seeing them a little bit more through God's eyes. And you realize, oh, that's not created to make me look good. I'm in this situation to make God look good. It's an incredibly freeing thing to live for God's glory because that's how, we're, that's how we were created to live. It's how we were made to live. <clears throat> that's God's goal for us. That's the first part of this passage. The second part Uh, talks about his guarantee that it's actually going to happen. And so we want to look at the next two verses, 13 and 14. And for right now, let's look at God's guarantee in verse 13. Let me read this to you. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, But in my relatively old age, I've gotten to the point where I kind of have started dreading making goals and resolutions because I have failed so many times. Like, I really have. Or or even, um, I've gotten to the point, this this maybe is a little bit weirder than that even, uh, I've gotten to the point where even when I have successes in the goals that I make, 
I actually get kind of sad. Like, I'll be like, oh man, I've gone two months without drinking Dr. Pepper. That's great. Or, oh, I've started a prayer journal and, and I've actually been praying pretty consistently for the last month. Or, you know, I've been to the gym three times a week for the last month. I'm feeling great. And I've gotten to the point where even when I have successes, I start getting sad because I'm like, oh, it's only a matter of time till I screw this one up again. <laughs> I, I, there's something wrong, right? I should probably see a counselor for that, maybe. I don't know. It's like not normal. But if our redemption, redemption trajectory, if the goal of us is becoming his inheritance for his glory, how are we so sure that we're not going to screw that up too? Like, how do we know we're not going to screw this up like we do so many other things? Well, it says in verse 13, it shows us. And at first it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believe. Now, let's, let's stop there with just that first phrase, because last week we got to see baptisms. There was five young people who came up between our two services, and they have experienced that. They had heard and believed. Now, maybe at one point in their life they had heard about Jesus before. They had heard about the cross of Jesus before, and uh, maybe they, you know, it had hit their ears a little bit, but it never really sunk in. But in the last 12 months, all five of the people that were in here had a moment where they really heard. And they really believed. They heard about this Jesus, and a light bulb went on, and they said, oh, wait, that is clear, that's compelling. I have to give my life to that. I, I have understood that Jesus has lived perfectly, that he has died for me and he is now resurrected to life and he can now give me new life through his resurrection. Now, some of you have heard about Jesus and you think he's a nice guy in here, but you have never been compelled enough to say, hey, I want to live for that. I want to give my life to him. That would mean that you've maybe heard, but you haven't heard and believed this truth. Others of you, the, the light bulb has come on at some point, and you realize, wow, I am a sinner. Wow, I do really need Jesus, and I have to give my life to him. There was a point at which you crossed over from death into life. And if you have done that, if you have heard and believed, there is an incredible promise right in this verse that says that when we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It, it says, uh, we've been learning the last three weeks that, that first the Father planned this redemption, then, then Jesus bought this redemption, and now in these passages you see the Holy Spirit applying this redemption. When we believe, we are sealed. Now the meaning of this is the sealing of the Holy Spirit is to identify people as God's own. And to give them security that they will always be his. This sealing of the Holy Spirit is an identification or an authentication of sorts for the believer. So I grew up in, uh, in rancher country in north central Nebraska. And in order to identify cattle, I know, a little odd, a cattle illustration in Blackstone, Omaha, it's going to be okay. So... So, in north central Nebraska, in order to identify cattle, by law, really, you have to brand them. You've heard of this, right? My closest rancher friends uh, that live uh, back home, what they do is on a specific day, they pick a, a Saturday and they invite everyone, like 
15 to 20 friends over to come, and they have this gigantic branding day. So they, they have this huge herd of cattle, and then the young calves, when they're born, they grow up to be about 200 to 300 pounds, and then all of those newest ones, the youngest ones, they come together, and they spend all day, and they brand So they heat up this hot branding iron, and it's in a specific shape that denotes their own ranch. They have to put it at a specific part on the body to make sure that it's uh, authenticated, and it has to be at a specific angle that is identified with their ranch. And they do all of this to these young calves that are around so that they will be officially authenticated as a part of the herd. And the idea is that if you're a rancher, is that everything that belongs to you has your official brand of identification or authentication. So you can imagine if a cow ever gets out of a pasture wandering, uh, you look at the brand and you know whose that belongs to and you can take it right back. Or it becomes impossible to steal something because if you try to steal something, you look at the brand and you say, oh, wait, I know who that belongs to because I see that specific brand, that authentic brand. It is unmistakable and it's permanent and it will never wear off. Now, Providence, if you've heard and believed in Jesus, there was a day that you were identified and authenticated as a follower of Jesus. You were claimed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. He has put his mark on you and it is permanent. You can't do anything about that. And that's good news. You can't be stolen away. You can't wander far enough off to where he just says, okay, you're too far away. You can't wander far enough off and get lost to where he can't find you again. You can't out his pursuit or his grace that comes to, or comes toward you, and you can't do that because God the Father has predestined you for himself. Jesus died 2,000 years ago to purchase your redemption, and today you have the seal of the Spirit. You can't lose your salvation because God planned it, he bought it, and now he has sealed it. You're his now. He claims mine over you. I heard uh, Pastor John Piper um, at a conference ask a, a crowd something to the effect of, what makes you so sure that you're going to wake up tomorrow as a Christian? He said, really, what, what, why do you have such assurance? <clears throat> and he went on and went through a couple reasons, but it's an interesting thing to think about for us. Like, what makes us so sure that we're going to wake up tomorrow morning a Christian? Is it because that we were born uh, in a Christian family and raised right? Is it because we've done a pretty good job of reading our Bible consistently over the last couple of years? Is it because that we've tried hard to follow Jesus for the last few decades of our life, and tomorrow when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to keep trying hard to follow Jesus? Is it because you've gone several months without uh, giving in to alcohol or drugs or to pornography in any way? Is it just because you've, you're a pretty good person and you don't think you're going to lose it because you're, you're, you're pretty mature at this point? Ephesians 1.13 says that we can be sure because we have been sealed. That's our guarantee. Man, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I still surprise myself with the stupid things that I do. The sinful things that I do. It's like, wow, where did that come from? But the verse is good news for those of us who have believed, because we absolutely do not have to worry 
that God is going to give up on us because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And now he looks at us and he says, she is mine. And he is mine. Verse 14 expounds and says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit and he is a guarantee of this inheritance to come, this this ultimate uniting with God to come. Now this idea of guarantee could be directly translated as as like an earnest deposit or a down payment. That's the idea that it's communicating here. So you, you know the idea of of a down payment, right? Maybe you've uh, paid that for a, maybe furniture at Nebraska Furniture Mart, I don't know, or a car, or maybe you've paid down for a house, you've put 10% down, or if you're wise, you save a lot, you put 20% down on a house, and the idea of this down payment that you put out is it is a first installment um, that guarantees that you're going to continue to pay until you ultimately have it completely as your own. And that's what's trying to be communicated here. This is saying that the Holy Spirit that we received initially when we believed is the initial down payment and guarantee that we are going to receive God in full later. We know that one day we will get our full inheritance with God. And that is uninhibited life with God. And in that moment, all of our sin struggles are going to be gone. All our pain of this world is going to be gone. All of our marks and blemishes and dents and tattered and tornness and the smell of drugs and all of that that McGill described last week, it will one day be gone. And we can know that one day it will be gone because we have been sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. He has guaranteed it. God has a goal, a resolution for your life, and it is to claim mine over your life. His goal is that you would become his for his glory through the power of the Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes it so well where it says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. His guarantee is the spirit has claimed you and will see it through to the praise of his glory. Verse 14 ends in the exact same way that verse 12 ended, the praise of his glory. So Providence Church, as we sit here this morning, we can be hopeful. We can be excited. We can be encouraged. We can be assured of our salvation. We can be uh, optimistic about what's coming because the wonderful reality of these 12 verses that we just studied these last three, three weeks are all true of us. The Spirit guarantees it that we have been given every spiritual blessing by God, that we have been chosen by God, we have been adopted into His family, we have been redeemed by him. We have been blessed by him. Uh, We have been showered with grace by him. We have been forgiven by him. And now we have been sealed by him. And all of this is ours and will one day be fully and completely realized. If you are in Christ, God himself looks at you and he proclaims mine. And that will never change because the Holy Spirit guarantees it. And if you're here this morning, 
and you've never experienced this, this redemption. You've never believed. Maybe you've heard before, but you've never heard and then believed. You know that maybe you're not sealed. This invitation is, is out there for you today. That you can hear and believe today. You can be sealed today. If God is working in your heart, would you not ignore that working? Uh, you can accept that invitation. If he's working in your heart, I would suggest nothing less. In just a second, uh, we're going to take communion, and Andrew and I will be at the back, and I'd love to talk with you through that, but don't ignore what God is doing in your heart right now. Could you let me pray for us? Jesus, we are thankful that you are um, so gracious to us. You've blessed us so tremendously. Oh, man, what an amazing thing that you have uh, saved us. You've planned it out. You've uh, saved us, and now that you have sealed us. Man, the Holy Spirit has done an amazing work in us, and could we be um, thankful to the praise of your glory? Could we be grateful? Could we be changed? Could we um, live out the fact that we are truly yours and anticipate the day when we will one day see you face to face? Jesus, what good news this run-on sentence is that we've been studying the last three weeks. Uh, Would it become a a song that would just uh, come out of us as a congregation? Would it just be the way we live, the place that we anchor our foundational hope and our joy? God, could it change us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.